Time to Travel with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Time to Travel. Well, on the show this evening, I'll be chatting with Chris von Sale, Head of Sustainability at the Vineyard Hotel in Cape Town, about the launch of a pilot program where coffee grounds are turned into gourmet mushrooms. Gavin Robenheimer of Peak High Mountaineering will be on the line and we'll be chatting about the tours and courses they offer. We'll also be taking a look at the equipment you would need to have a safe and enjoyable hike. Michael Parnell, General Manager of the Taj Hotel in Cape Town, will be joining us a bit later, and we'll be finding out about the launch of the 2014 Cape Legends Interhotel Challenge and how it works, which, which is to encourage and develop new talent in the hospitality industry. And then I'll be joined in studio by Patrick Kreivachen. He's currently the features editor of the Land Rover Monthly magazine in the UK, but before that he spent a decade working as the bush editor of SA 4x4 magazine here in South Africa. And his book, Your Bucket List, has just been released. It contains 150 must-do experiences in Southern Africa. And just a reminder that if you need any information about something you hear on Time to Travel this evening, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Travel on SAFM. Or you can drop me an email on travel at safm.co.za. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Time to Travel with Karen Key. Well, it's always good to hear about innovative, sustainable projects put in place within the hospitality industry. And the one we'll be talking about this evening has got to be one of the most creative I've ever heard about. The Vineyard Hotel in Cape Town is using previously discarded coffee grounds to grow gourmet mushrooms. And to tell us more about this, I'm joined now by Chris Van Sale, and he's Head of Sustainability at the Vineyard Hotel. Chris, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, Karen. This is quite unique. I mean, I don't know anybody else who's using sort of what I suppose in the past would have just been thrown away, coffee grounds to grow fabulous gourmet mushrooms. Now, Karen, we, we used to use the, the coffee grinds. They used to go through a composting process called bokashi. Um, so it wasn't actually being thrown away. So okay. It wasn't actually being turned into something useful. But um, we were approached by a company called Artisan Mushrooms a couple of months ago, and they wanted to grow what they call forest mushrooms, and they needed um, coffee grinds. And, you know, they approached us and they said, can we get hold of your coffee grinds? We said, yeah, sure. I approached our F&B department and uh, they were keen to get involved and, and that's where it started. So how does this actually work? I mean, how much of the coffee grinds do you actually need to produce the mushrooms? Well, they collect approximately 150 kilograms per month. And then it takes about six weeks before they can actually bring the mushrooms back to, to the hotel. Gosh, that's actually not that long of a turnaround time. It's quite quick, yeah. Quite quick. So, and, uh, what exactly are you growing? You said forest mushrooms, but what are those? They well, they grow uh, what they call oyster mushrooms, mm. uh, which you can use in a variety of dishes. I think it's quite sought after, um, and it, it's basically at the moment it's a pilot project, so they're just getting started. Um, and if everything goes well, we'll then also involve our other two hotels, the the Tarnas and the Odeberg Hotel, also in Cape Town, also to supply. Um, coffee grinds to you know, increase the volumes and so on. Now, I was reading some information that says, I'm assuming this is artisan mushrooms, who are looking at extending this project to produce a greater selection of seasonal um, varieties and all sorts of things. Is that just going to stay within the mushroom family or are they moving out into other things? What are they doing? They'll stay in the mushroom family. What I believe is that they start off with the oyster mushrooms and then they use the same material for growing other mushrooms and then... When that is no longer viable to use to grow the mushrooms, they then turn it into compost. So 
it does a full sort of process and cycle and you could buy it back and grow plants, for example. So it sort of has quite a long life. It just keeps on going and doing things. Oh, definitely. And what's quite interesting also is that um, the gentleman who comes to collect the, the coffee grinds, Ronald, uh, he comes by, by bicycle quite often to collect the grinds because he doesn't stay too far from where we are. And uh, the majority of the coffee grinds are also fair trade accredited. So, I mean, it comes from a fair trade uh, product. So that's, that's a good story all around. Gosh, so I mentioned that you're head of sustainability at the vineyard. So what else do you do there? Uh, we do a lot. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> we do a lot. Um, we'd like to think that we, we basically were leaders in sustainability, especially in the Western Cape. And um, we started around about uh, 2003, 2004. We did an audit on the impact, you know, that we have on on the hotel and our surroundings and our community. And some of the things that we found out were quite horrified. Uh, and um, we, you know, had to look for ways to sort of see what we could do to reduce our impact. And one of the things, for example, is... At that stage, we weren't doing any recycling. And um, one of the figures I always mention is we were sending around about 360 of these big black wheelie bins to landfill per month. Wow. Um, we could have filled a, a landfill site all on our own, <laughs> carrying <laughs> on like, like that. Sounds like it, yeah. So what we did is um, we brought in waste minimization company and so on, did a lot of recycling, and now we send less than 50 uh, bins per month. So how many were you sending in the beginning? Over 360. Over 300. Wow, that's, that's a huge reduction, Chris. And uh, so we, we're basically sitting between 90 95% of our waste is recycled. And we use projects besides that. We use things like Bokashi I mentioned earlier, mm. where you all your food waste is turned back into compost. Um, we've got a whole variety of other projects where we collect um, corks, you know, which normally would have gone to landfill. And um, there's a company that collects them. They break it down and they turn it into to cork flooring. And for every 10,000 corks we collect, we get um, 10 square meters of cork flooring back, which we can then donate to a, a social project. And we were very lucky the other day to get 800,000 corks, which I'm wow. not sure exactly where they came from and how they came to be available, but they, they couldn't be used in the wine industry. So they were donated, and that, yeah, that's quite a substantial amount. And uh, I think one of the most um, interesting projects that we're busy with at the moment and it's just uh, getting going is uh, we, um, we've always wanted to have uh, renewable energy on the property. And uh, we installed 80 solar panels and they started generating around about the 8th of January. And um, yeah, they're ready to generate 8.5 megawatt hours of, um, of energy. So it's, it's really making a big difference, even though it's only about 1% of our total consumption, you know, it's a start. And we've got lots of flat roofs on our property, so we can keep on adding as and when we have funds to do that. This, this is definitely the way to go in the hospitality industry because I think especially with international tourists coming to South Africa, it's one of the things I think they look for when they get here. I think they, they expect that you have done mm. as much as possible. Um, so, so that's the sort of feeling we're getting, and we're sort of getting from our... The figures um, and from the guest questionnaires that about 40% of the um, of the guests are seeing value in what we're doing. You know, it's a slow process. Not everybody's on board. So um, I think 40% is actually quite a good start.
It's a very good start. And I mean, as head of the sustainability, I'm assuming that all the time you're looking for new things to do. Have you got anything interesting in the pipeline? Um, well, you know, there's, there's never, there's always challenges, especially around chemicals and water. How can you save water? Water is a, is a big challenge for me. I think it's going to be one of the things we're definitely going to see as a a problem going forward. Well, as the people who know the vineyard will know that you've got the most magnificent gardens there. So, luckily, we got a lot of boreal water, mm. but you know that's not a never-ending supply. That that might have to be used one day for potable water. Mm. So, you know, we really have to look and see, and we, we're looking at projects, for example, going forward of grey water harvesting and that type of thing. And you know, across the board, we've had many challenges with water uh, providing water to to the um, Republic of South Africa in various areas. And, um, you know, one day there might be, at the moment, there is still water in the dams, but one day there might be a time when there is no water there. So it doesn't matter if you can't deliver it, there just is nothing to deliver. And mm. that's when you really need to have made plans so that you can avoid the catastrophe that that would create. Is your position as head of sustainability quite a common thing in the hospitality industry? Because I've never heard of someone like you before. Um, no, there aren't very many hotels that have. Uh, a, a sustainability manager um, I'm for the group. So we have three hotels, but mm. uh, there aren't too many of us. Normally given to either a consultant or somebody within the hotel has to take it on with um, all the other by projects all, that they run and so on. I'm saying by all accounts, it sounds like a full-time job for you, no, Chris. Definitely. No, definitely. <laughs> I must congratulate you. I mean, it's a wonderful project and a number of different projects that you have going on there. So I really wish you much luck into going into the future and we look forward to all the wonderful things you're going to be, all the lovely mushrooms you're going to be growing there. I think it's a great project. Thank you so much for sharing it with us this evening. Thanks very much, Karen. Thanks, Chris. Good night to you. Yeah. Chris Von Sale is Head of Sustainability, as I mentioned, at the Vineyard Hotel in Cape Town. And for more information on this new pilot project, you can take a look at their website. It's www.vineyard.co.za. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, with South Africans being such avid outdoors people, I decided to take a look at what's on offer as far as hiking and outdoor life is concerned. So this evening I'm joined on the line by Gavin Robenheimer. He's a mountain guide instructor and owner of Peak High Mountaineering. He's also the Mountain Club of South Africa convener of Search and Rescue in KZN and the Drakensberg. Gavin, good evening. Welcome to the show. Um, hi there. Uh, yeah, uh, evening. I'm so glad we managed to catch you when you were off the mountain because you seem to be up there quite a lot. Yes, yeah, I know. I've just been overseas and so on like that. So, yes, yeah, back at home now. Good. Well, welcome back. So tell us a little bit about the hiking. What What is peak hike, peak, peak hike, peak high mountaineering offer as far as courses and destinations and that sort of thing, the tours you offer? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a fairly varied kind of program that I have, and uh, I live a fairly good life as a result. It's not all the same sort of stuff. So you... Um, the, the main stuff is is um, hiking in the Drakensberg, which are anything from like two to six day hikes with one, two, three, four people at a time. And they are overseas guests or local people. There's also a call for rock climbing in the berg, so um, I guide on peaks like Monk's Cow and Sentinel Peak. Um, come winter time, there's, a, there's a, 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 um, a need and so on for uh, snow and ice climbing courses not so much on the guiding side, but people just wanting to learn how to ice climb. And uh, with, uh, with, there's a, a certain trend for people to go and climb 
in peaks like Elbrus in Russia and so on like that. And I teach people how to use ice axes and, uh, and so on, on in, in kind of snowy kind of conditions so that they know what they're doing when they go to the, to the larger mountains. Um, also guiding, guiding uh, climbs in places like Cedarburg and Machalisburg is part of the job. And then I also offer courses um, now, I'm licensed under an organization called the MDT, or the Mountain Development Trust. And the, the MDT has courses ranging from basic mountain walking leaders, um, APSEL supervisor guy, and um, right up to what I am, which is an MIA, or, or a mountaineering instructor. And, um, for instance, something like a basic mountain walking leader course is the, is the kind of appropriate course for somebody like a teacher who might take their school children out into the mountains and they need some sort of training and certification. So it's aimed at that type of thing. You, um, you also take expeditions to play, but they're obviously on request. They're not sort of set in stone things that you once a month or once every six months do them. Things like Mount Kenya and Namibia and the Alps in Europe, the Andes in Uganda, Ruinzori Mountains in Uganda. So you do quite a, it's quite a vast array of things that you do offer. Yes, yeah. So those sort of international trips, are, it's usually one person, uh, maybe two, and, and they hire me to, to go to fly out to the French Alps or... Um, the Swiss Alps, Mount Kenya, and so on. And I will be there as, as a guide, but doing the hard rope work in the front of the party, up rock faces, up snow and ice climbs, and so on like that. And, and they're paying me to look after them in that kind of, obviously, high-risk kind of environment. I was um, I, I was going to say what a fabulous life being flown all over the world, but then you started on a bath, you had the difficult job of the ropes and, the, and being at the front and looking after them. It didn't sound so easy after that. Yeah, I know, no, it's a, there's, there's obviously a lot of skill involved mm. in, in how you climb a large mountain and, and how, do you, how do you come down it and stuff like that. Um, and, and then I, I, I have a sort of a, there's a sort of a kind of part, part-time part of it is that once in a while I get called in to do more sort of legal work where if there's been an accident at an adventure center or something like that, normally when somebody's died, in fact, I've been called in to do investigations into that kind of work and um, um, being an expert w- w- witness in court and stuff like that when people have died and, and, and uh, you know, a, a whole, whole thing has to be worked out and how it happened and why it happened and so on. Gosh, that's quite... So it is very varied. It's quite, I was going to say, it's quite, it isn't the same thing day after day. You're doing a range of different things all the time. And then your website, I was actually so impressed, but it's www.peakhigh.co.za, and it is full of information for people who maybe just casual Sunday hikers or weekend hikers. There's so much information on there, Gavin, that you know they literally can't go wrong having a look at that. But just to give people some idea, um, and just one thing you mentioned as well about people, particularly maybe teachers who are taking groups of school children out, on there, you have as well leadership. Uh, if you want to do uh, be a lead, leader of a hiking group, you've got hiking tips for leaders, which I think is very important. Yes, yeah. No, on on my webpage, if people went to the tips section, and there's tips on hiking and tips on climbing, and I've got in, anything there from why and how you use mountaineering ropes and how they're certified to how to choose a hiking boot or how a sleeping bag is made and what you must look for and so on. 
That's one of the big things I think when people go hiking, I always say, you know, don't go out in your slip slops because halfway up you're going to suddenly remember you should have actually put the other shoes on. Yes. What is the one thing if people are wanting to go hiking, even if it's just not even a strenuous hike, but just a general relatively medium sort of type of hike, what, what is the requirement when it comes to boots or shoes? To, to boots. Mm. Yeah, well, I would probably argue for the idea that the boot must be made of full grain uh, leather and um, obviously it it must be comfortable on you and so on like that, you know, it must feel nice on you. But you want a boot that's preferably made with one piece of of, um, leather so that you don't have much kind of stitching or anything like that uh, and so on in, in the boot. Every time you put a seam into a boot, that's a place that water can get into ultimately. It's a place where the boot can break. So if you can have it all made in one piece, that is a good, that's a good starting point on a, on a boot. And when it comes to carrying things like backpacks, are there any specific tips you have for people? Because often, I mean, I think if you carry too much stuff, you could end up damaging your back or your shoulders. What would you recommend, first of all, kind of backpack, and what would you recommend the most is that uh, you should be taking in it? There, there's... You know, if you're going on an overnight hike, uh, there's a vast kind of array of bags that you can go and buy. You really, the person needs to go to a shop that that you can get some good advice on and have the bag, you know, all the straps in that, you can um, make them longer and shorter and so on. And most bags you can make, you'll be able to make um, into a nice, comfortable bag, but it's a case of you've got to... Um, uh, you know, have, have, get, get some good advice on, on how to adjust it and so on like that. But there are really so many bags available. Do you find that too many people go out hiking or mountaineering and with, with too little experience or too little training and that's when they get into trouble? Um, yeah, it's, you know, if one looks at sort of mountain rescue and the kind of things that we get called out on, um, most often, the, we say the, the largest um, reason why people get into trouble is that they can't read a map properly. And if you can read a map properly and you can understand contour lines, and you can understand how, um, if, you, if you can look at the landscape ahead of you and relate that into a map, and you can, you can see a map and relate that to how the, how the land will, will be in front of you, you most likely are not going to get lost and you'll find your way quite happily. Um, it's when people can't read a map properly, that's when things go wrong. And um, unfortunately, there's also been a tendency in the last few years for people to think that you don't really need to read a map, you need a, a, a GPS with you. Mm. That is just a total load of you know, rot. You actually have to go to read a map to find your way and not try to follow a, 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 a machine. Now, as part of your courses that you offer, the sort of recreational course possibly for for the just general man in the street, is that obviously that would be one of the things you teach or should they be learning that somewhere else? Um, no, no, I, I teach map work and how to, you know, how to read contour lines and, and, and you know, it's a, it's a whole art of how to find your way through mountains or wilderness and so on. And, and there's no reason why people should actually get lost. You can, you can walk at night and in the mist and so on like that. And as long as you can read read the map properly and keep track of where you are, you should never get into a, into a position that you that you can't find your way out of. 
How often do you run these courses? Um, I run, well, I run them on demand. So for something like a basic mountain walking leader, I would normally take one booking and then try to get two or three other people on this on the same course on the same date. So I, I do have some set dates, but they're not fixed. I can vary them. And, 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 and on, on a course like that, I don't just do network. There's emergencies, how to deal with lightning, other hazards, how to cross rivers and so on. And your courses only take place up in KZN or do you do any anywhere else in the country? I will go just about anywhere in the country, but usually they take place in, in the book. So it's, almost, it's almost a case, would you say that people before they set out, I mean, okay, for the Sunday afternoon, a little stroll, maybe not, but if they're going to go for overnight walks and that, or hikes and that sort of thing, do you think that they should be doing some sort of a course before they even attempt to do that? Um, well, I, I wouldn't say they must do a course, but they must, they must have some kind of knowledge of what they do. Um, you know, don't, don't walk out there with no, you know, with no map and not know how to read it and, and uh, you know, go out and into the Heiberg, for instance, and not have ever put up your, 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 your tent before and have to work that out in the middle of a storm. So, yes, you know, I give the courses, so I would say, yes, you must go on a course, but, you know, I never, I never went on a course. I just learnt as I went along. Um, but you do need to go out there with a, you know, some, some kind of skill. Well, there should at least be one person in your group that knows what they're doing, effectively. They can be the leader and the rest of you follow. That should be okay. Yes, yeah. So you would ideally want your leader to, um, they must be well equipped, they must be able to read a map, they must have a map with them, they must have the emergency services numbers, mountain rescue numbers with them and know how to use them, and what the protocols are. And then they must also check the, whoever they, they're with, they must check that they have waterproof clothing and a sleeping bag and a decent pair of boots on before they go out. And that would be the leader's kind of job to make sure that they're reasonably equipped before they go out. So as long as there's a leader and he's checking up that everybody's okay, you, the rest of you should be fine? Yeah, you, sh- you kind of should be fine. And if, if a guy is good um, at, at his job, if there is a problem and somebody breaks a leg, at least um, the right things then will kind of happen after that. Um, and the right people will be phoned and, and so on. Right, so I think what we've taken out of this, the Gavin, is that don't wander off on your own. You, you might think it's going to be an easy walk. I know we have quite a lot of problems here in Cape Town with Table Mountain where people wander up there and um, sort of get stuck up there and they've gone up in a short sleeve T-shirt and then suddenly the weather comes over and they're freezing and then they get lost. And, you know, they think, well, it's a little easy Sunday afternoon stroll, but it's a mountain. It's a big mountain. You have to be very careful and very prepared before yeah, you go on, up on a there. Place like, on a place like that, um, because you've got, you know, it's in the middle of a large... Yes area of of of, uh, of a city basically yeah and I, I believe that the record for somebody getting lost is climbing off an airplane and 40 minutes later he was lost on table mountain <gasps> really yes so <laughs> it does happen he went directly from the airport up the mountain and got lost oh my goodness yeah, because we have we have lots of reports of people wandering up for a Sunday afternoon stroll and then, oh, I didn't think the weather was going to come over, but it's always colder up there and we didn't think we needed to wear X number, type of shoes or, you know, and so it's really just, you, before you go there, it's, it's a huge mountain, it might be in the middle of a city, but, you know, take the correct precautions, make sure that you are correctly dressed, you've got the right equipment, somebody at least knows where you are and when you've, where you've gone and when you expect it back, that's the other thing, you know, make sure people know where you are. Yes, um, 
look, in a place, of, place like Michalisburg or, or um, kind of around the uh, Cape Mountains, there's no, you know, if you are going out into the mountains, you need to tell somebody where, where you're going and when you're due back, um, how many are in the party. If you come to the Natal Drakensberg, there's, when, you, when you enter the gate, there's a, a form you have to fill out which gives you all that kind of information. And it can be very useful if somebody is lost or overdue. We, we take that information and, and work through it and work out you know, where the people are most likely going to be, what they said they were going to do, their ages. You know, it all makes a difference to, to mm. the response of a mountain rescue team. For instance, the age of the person... Um, uh, you know, um, were they were they intending to go out for the day, or were they intending to go for out for six days, and so on? It makes a huge huge difference to know the, all that kind of information. Well, I hope people have been listening and taking notes, Gavin. And thank you very much indeed for all that wonderful, useful information tonight. I hope people who spend a lot of time walking up in the mountains took note of that and hopefully we won't have any more lost people or any more tragedies up there. But thank you so much for your time this evening. I do appreciate that. Okay, pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Gavin. Good night to you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Gavin Robenheimer is the owner of Peak High Mountaineering. He's a mountain guide and instructor and also the Mountain Club of South Africa convener of search and rescue in KZN and the Drakensberg. For more information on the tours and the courses that he offers, you can take a look at www.peakhigh.co.za. Time to travel with Karen Key. Well, the second annual Cape Legends Interhotel Challenge, the hospitality industry's ultimate showdown of food and wine pairing, was launched this month and will, for the first time, include Johannesburg and Durban. Last year, it only took place in Cape Town. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined now by Michael Pownall, General Manager of the Taj Hotel in Cape Town, one of the participating hotels. Michael, good evening. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Karen. So rather, How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Rather exciting. You, I think it launched, the Cape Town launch was at the Taj last night. It was uh, a great night. We actually managed to capture the tourism minister, uh, Van Skolbeck, to come and uh, officiate as well, which was great. Did you take part in it last year? We did. Um, and as you said, it was the inaugural one, so we weren't quite sure what it was uh, going to lead to last year, but it was a lot of fun and very competitive, um, which uh, is symbolic to, I think, a lot of hotels in South Africa. We love to compete with one another. And uh, it's well, the nice thing about the Interhotel Challenge, the Cape Legends Interhotel Challenge, is that it, it's really it's based on this whole premise of uplifting and training and mentoring and nurturing all those thousands of young people who come into the hospitality industry, possibly not having had any formal training, but have seemed to have this knack for the for the work. It is, and I think whilst there's, you know, for in my living memory, there's always been a lot of training goes on in hotels. It's great when you can come and uh, include a competitive element um, and a fun competitive element, which is what this definitely does. Um, you know, because I think just like we watch MasterChef and things like that on TV, it, it, it suddenly makes uh, learning and practicing your skills uh, gives you a, a sense of fun in a competitive way. So how does this actually work now? It's all to do with food and wine, so it involves chefs and sommeliers, but it's all—it's more trainees who are going to be mentored now. Yeah, it's uh, it's aimed at uh, younger, uh, recently reasonably recently qualified chefs and uh, chefs and wine waiters, um, obviously from from leading establishments, um, who get a chance to put together. 
together <clears throat> a menu with wine pairings um, in advance of a competitive evening when they actually have to cook uh, in a closed kitchen environment um, under a lot of pressurized time uh, time scale and then present the food, the wine waiter has to present the wines uh, to a panel of judges and then a little bit like a master chef type thing, the judges uh, score amongst the teams and uh, ultimately uh, you know a winner is a winner is found so now if just for take the Taj for example so you have your head chef or your chef in the kitchen will be mentoring the chef in well almost like a trainee chef if you like who's yeah. part of this competition and the same will be with your sommelier will be mentoring the wine steward correct yeah um and I think each hotel probably does it that similar way. And I know what we'll do is internally before the actual um, <clears throat> day of the cook-off, you know, we'll have our chef uh, present probably to my senior food and beverage team a couple of times, you know, put them under a bit of pressure to cook for us in an environment not dissimilar to what they'll find on the day. So that when they do go and do the competition itself, you know, they will have been used to uh, dealing with a bit of pressure. And uh, yeah, let's let's you know let's see how they go. I mean, it, it, it's really not just about the winning though, Karen. It really very much is about just participating and being part of something a little bit different to the normal work routine. How excited are the staff at the moment in your kitchen? Um, look, it built a lot of hype. As I say, last year uh, and an inaugural year, and I don't think many of us kind of knew quite how competitive and how much uh, fun it would be. Um, so with that behind us last year, definitely this year, we're taking it uh, up a few notches and I think there's a lot more excitement and, and, and you know, willingness to try to see, in our case, the Taj's name um, put forward, uh, hopefully as one of the, uh, one of the top teams. Um, and of course, the, the, the additional big challenge this year is, is, is Annette Kessler, who, who is, you know, is the organiser thrown it open to hotels in Johannesburg to do their own regional uh, competition and Durban for theirs. And then it could be the winners from Durban, Johannesburg and Cape Town who compete ultimately in the final. Because last year there were just 10 hotels here in the Cape that, that battled it out. Yeah. So, But now yeah. they've got competition from around the country, which I think is, is quite a nice thing. It opens it up a bit. Definitely, and uh, you know, there's always been a north side, north south yes. <laughs> rival, whether it's whether it's rugby cricket, I know, um, and now uh, and now hotels, and, uh, and and that for me is is going to be quite interesting. Uh, the final though is going to be in Cape Town, uh, I think at the Mount Nelson um, in July, if, if if I'm not mistaken. Um, so yeah, no, look, it's 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 a lot of fun. I mean, certainly for me personally. I mean, I know some of the hoteliers in Johannesburg in Durban, so we will be able to rib one another, um, you know, along the way. And uh, let's just see, not just which hotel wins, but actually which region has the winning hotel in it. Do you think if I went home now and started practicing, if I watched enough MasterChef and practiced, I could come and work in your kitchen and maybe win this thing because I want the prize, Michael. <laughs> You know, practice, practice, practice. Can't boil an egg uh, properly, but I'm, I'm going to try. The, the uh, prize definitely. is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you want me to mention the prize? Please do, yes. You can make yeah, everybody well, else jealous just like me. Yeah, I think, look, this year, um, because we've, we've just decided to step up to the plate this year, as done by being the host of the launch last night. And similarly, we've put the first prize forward, which is a, a three-week training uh, experience 
Hall in in Mumbai uh, a week in you know, a week in three different restaurants in that hotel, uh, which I have to say has about ten. So, so wow. the person could actually be there for a while. Mm. Um, to be mentored by the head chefs of three different restaurants, um, you know, it will be an incredible experience. And, and quite honestly, if if for anybody who hasn't been to India, I mean, just to spend three weeks in India. Um, is one heck of a life-changing experience. Um, so I think that combined with um, with the kind of mentorship of senior chefs there will be a very, very um, significant prize for somebody that I think will alter their horizons for what the, the industry and the world, for that matter, has in, has in store for successful chefs. That's the chef's prize. And then the, the wine stewards, their bursaries, the Cape Wine Academy has, has uh, given very generous bursaries, I think, for the prizes for that. Yes, indeed, and, uh, and and I mean not to not to say that they come second, the wine guys, because they certainly don't. Um, I I believe from last year the quality of the uh, and, and the tests that they put them through were significant. Um, you know, as I said, part of it is about uh, pairing uh, pairing wines from different Cape Legends uh, wine estates. Uh, we uh, we picked uh, Lomond uh, wines this year. Um, and uh, so we'll be working closely with them to find which of their wines and their range work with the menu that our chef puts together. So our wine steward will, you know, first be doing that. Then, as I said, they will be serving those wines uh, when they do the cook-off. So there will be the, the etiquette of serving professionally, having the wines at the right temperature, the right glassware, um, you know, serving the right way, uh, answering questions about the wines from the judges. Um, and uh, but I think they also do other general tests uh, for these guys on their general knowledge of wine. So yeah, they're under a lot of pressure as well. Um, well, there's also I mean I just mentioned the bursaries from Cape Wine Academy, but there are other prizes both for the chefs and the wine stewards. I mean you see this list of chefs of uh, prizes, and I'm definitely going to go home and start watching MasterChef a bit more closely now. But before we, Michael, before yeah. we go, I just wanted to ask you: the Taj Hotel is absolutely the most spectacular building. It is one of those iconic, almost national landmark type buildings in the middle of Cape Town, um, which was the Reserve Bank at one point, I think, as it was before that, and the Mint. And you, you've you've got a restaurant there called Mint, which I thought was very very good when you named it that. But it's a fabulous, fabulous building. And you, you're going to be opening up a new space there, or you have maybe have already opened it. Uh, well, correct. We just well, we're just in the process of. Um, effectively, the hotel's uh, been open just four years now, down at the end of uh, March, so we're still reasonably new. Um, but doing extremely well now. Uh, first couple of years was quite challenging with with a lot of new hotels in Cape Town. But I think people now have understood where the Taj is, that the fact that that part of the city across from uh, St. George's Cathedral is actually a wonderful, wonderful part of the town. So we've been doing really well, but, but one of the negatives we've had is that our banqueting uh, and private you know, meetings facilities were very, very small. So uh, we've just taken a, a great opportunity to take a very long lease on an, uh, our neighboring building, uh, which some will remember as being a restaurant a couple of years ago called Riverville. Um, others may not be aware of the building, but uh, it's right next to us. Also was a very old bank. It was actually ABC Bank. Oh, right, yes. African mm. Banking Corporation Bank. Um, so it's very much in the style of uh, the Taj Hotel itself. 
So we've just taken that on. We've been knocking, uh, knocking uh, entrance service passageways between the two buildings, um, uplifting the decor and enhancing the architectural kind of historic features of it. So um, we're due to officially open it probably the end of March, uh, but we did do the launch last night in there. So, uh, so that was a good kickoff. Particularly having the tourism minister uh, yes. under, under the roof there, absolutely. Um, and yeah, and that'll accommodate up to about 450 people. Um, so it's a significant space in a part of the city that hasn't really had a uh, what I would call a you know decent sized, very high quality banqueting and private event venue before. Sounds amazing, Michael. Lots of stuff happening at the Taj, including the Interhotel Challenge this year again. Well, I wish you much success for your chef and your wine stew. Can't play favourites here, but I do wish you success. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure who's going to win this year, but good luck to all of you at the Taj. Thank you very and much. And thank you so much for your time this evening. Okay. Good night to you. Michael Parnell is the General Manager of the Taj Hotel in Cape Town. And for more information on Taj Hotels, take a look at www.tajhotels.com. And for more information on Showcook, their website is www.showcook.com. Time to travel with Karen Key. I'm joined in studio this evening by Patrick Cravach, and he's currently the features editor of Land Rover Monthly magazine in the United Kingdom. And before that, he spent a decade working as the bush editor of SA 4x4 magazine here in South Africa. And uh, he's written this fabulous book called Your Bucket List, 150 Must-Do Experiences in Southern Africa, not just in South Africa, but in Southern Africa. Patrick, good evening. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be back in Cape Town. 150 Must-Do Experiences. Now, this is very very unlike a lot of the books that I normally look at on the show, which are normally travel guides or suggestions of where to go, what to do when you get there. This is literally a cross-section of things to do. It's not a destination per se. It, you've, you've sort of cha- put it into different countries, but it's not just go to this country and experience the country. You've actually made it, these are the experiences you will find there. Too often when we when we travel on a tar road, we don't take turn-offs or, or if we go to Vic Falls we only go and stand at, in the National Park tourist viewpoint. We don't, we don't actually explore a little bit beyond that and, and, and that's what I've tried to do, do with this book. I've, I've tried to see places that we already know but, but see them a little bit differently. Yeah. Well talking about Vic Falls, one of the things to do when you said when you get there is to go and swim in the devil's pool. That that sounds like it could be quite hair raising but the most exhilarating experience. It's, it's so funny when I, when I flew back on the, on the SAA flight um, yesterday and I sat in the back of the plane chatting to the staff and, and they often fly to Livingston and, and I told them in great detail of, of what they should do. Now we all know that the Vic Falls is basically a mile wide and um, if you get a guide and for, for swimming in Devil's Pools, you have to you have to get a guide because some people have actually come a cropper there. They take you along the edge of, of Victoria Falls. There's only a certain time of the year that you can do this, and and there's actually a pool called the Devil's Pools right next to Livingston Island where you can you jump off a rock and the water takes you across and it. There's a wall that stops you from going over the edge of the I was about to say, you falls. can't just slide off the edge. No, you are no. quite specific about that when you talk about it in no, the book. It's, there it's, is a wall there. Yeah, it's very safe. But when, when we did it, my wife, she didn't even want to look. She sort of turned, <laughs> she, she turned the other way and, and she was actually um, quite upset. But if, if, if you go onto YouTube and go onto the, the, their Facebook page, you'll see there's, there's hundreds of people doing it every day. But if you didn't know about it, you, you wouldn't do it. So um, it's definitely something to do. And, and you can get this once-in-a-lifetime image of yourself on the top 
edge of, of, of Victoria Falls. So, yeah, def definitely one to do. Yeah. If you're wondering about how to go about finding out how you can do that, every single thing that you've put in here of the 150 experiences, you tell people, you give them all the contact details, you tell them where it, you, there's all the information is there. You don't have to even go look for it somewhere yeah. else. Yeah, I've, I've, I've made the adventure or the, or the experience easy for yourself. It's um, You read the chapter, sort of plan your trip, and I, I tell you where to stay. I, I, I give you a guide, telephone number. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's all there for you. It's adventure or travel made made pretty simple. Yeah. And then if you enjoyed that particular thing that you've just gone and done, you also have a little box that says similar experiences. So if you want to go and do something like that somewhere else, you give them those options too. <laughs> yeah, if you... If you enjoy jumping off the sort of yeah. <laughs> the blowcross bridge, you can go and do it at Victoria Falls as well. So um, yeah, I, th I think that's important as well. Was this your own personal bucket list that sort of evolved into a book? It's 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 an interesting way that, um, how it came about. I sat with my publishers and I I went into this meeting with with several book ideas and and just before I went into the meeting, I thought. What will sort of um, bring all of this together? And I said, geez, imagine if I wrote a bucket list, a travel bucket list. And I, and I just, I remember the number, I wrote down 127 things to do before you die in Southern Africa. And out of all my ideas, the, 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 this is the one they liked the most. Yeah, these are all things that I've experienced in my, my, my time as travel. As you said earlier, I, I used to work for South African 4x4 magazine. And I think I had the best job in the world. Each month when a new four-wheel drive came out, they would give it to me and they'd say, go and catch a tiger fish in the Delta or go and camp on the Mahali Hari Pan. So that's how I got to experience all these places. And another thing I did while, while doing this, I always try to use locals. I mean, these are the best guides. They know that area better than a travel book, better than you ever will. So um, that's quite an important tip when... When, 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 when traveling into a place. And, and that's how I got to find a lot of these places. And um, as I said just now, um, I don't just say go to Victoria Falls. I say go and swim in devil's pools or jump in a helicopter and get them to drop you off on an island a little bit upstream from Victoria Falls. I mean, experience it differently, but in, in, in a special way that will make it memorable. Yeah. That, that, you're talking about drop you off on an island. That was another section in the book where you actually talk about would you like to go off and sleep on an island somewhere? Yeah. And you give people a number of different options. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's several islands all over South in Africa that we don't even know about on sort of Lake Malawi Jeez, if you go up to Lamu Island although that's a bit close to Somalia so I, I don't know if you want to go risky. there mm. I don't know if you want to go there at the moment but there's yeah there's there's lots of little islands we can we can you, you can spend a night on so um yeah definitely definitely something to do um, I, I love Malawi it's probably it's probably one of my favorite southern African countries everyone always thinks of this poor place but I, I, the people are so happy there which is which is astonishing and people so, often talk about that yeah, about the Malawians yeah, of being yeah. a friendly happy nation yeah it's, it's, it's not called the warm heart of Africa mm. for nothing I mean the, the islands in the southern part of, of, of the lake, I mentioned them in the book as well. So um, definitely something to try and do, to try and go to, yeah. The one thing I don't think I would even potentially like to try, and as one of the 150 must-do experiences, was driving in Luanda. Now, I thought I'd experienced <laughs> that when I went to Egypt and try, we tried to go. We, granted, we weren't driving ourselves. We were driving in a taxi, which was bad enough in Cairo. Is, is this worse? I mean, are you obviously driving yourself well, this in Luanda. This morning in Strand Street in Cape Town, there was a <laughs> there was a truck broken down in the middle lane, but it, it wasn't half as crazy as Luanda. Um, when the first time I went to Angola, I I drove myself and I had to meet a guide at a GPS coordinate just outside the city, and and then he sort of drove me into the city. And out of all the sort of twenty seven or twenty eight African countries I've been to, Luanda is just the maddest. You, you can't believe, especially on a on a Friday afternoon, there's maybe a place for two or three lanes of cars, but they're driving sort of ten across and there's people 
So trying to sell you a goat. There's just sellers all around the vehicle and police and it's just total, total and you hardly move. You can stand still for hours. So I haven't been to Lagos, um, Nigeria, but I, I think it's probably on par with that. But even though it was crazy and it's probably something no one would ever go and do except... People like you. Yeah, people that are very, <laughs> very brave. I mean, the, the, the tour companies that do go through Angola um, that take South African sort of overlanders, they sort of bypass Luanda. But I, I'm not like that. Even on a later trip, we stayed on the Kwanzaa River, which is just south of Luanda. I still, on my own, went into Luanda and went out because it's a great night out, I think. It's, a, it's, got, it's, got, it's quite an expensive city by, by African standards. And Cape Town is probably cheap compared to that. But but um, I enjoyed going in there. It's, I mean, it's, it's all part of travel. Like I'm going to Maputo as well when I'm in Mozambique there's good sort of jazz clubs and um, there's even people that know in in, um, in Maputo you can do a hop on hop off city tour I mean in an African city it's it's, it's, it's unheard of I think it's only Cape Town maybe and, and Maputo that have that so. well Johannesburg's just got it done okay. by last year so there we, we're getting there so maybe but, the next book will be 151 things to do we can add the Johannesburg we can add that one yes yeah, yeah. now the thing is about this we're talking about some of the slightly more hair raising things that people will think oh no I don't really think I want to do that but there's a lot in here I mean there's things like going to watch the turtles breeding or the hatching and, mm. and the hatchlings going down to the sea and there's things like going for a sunset picnic and going off to watch rugby at Loft or yeah. at Newlands or yeah. you know it's all those kinds of things as well which are in themselves great experiences yeah they, they, they're easy to do you don't have to be sort of physical fit or uh, a daredevil um I joke, I tell people when I was I was born in Pretoria and, and my dad took me to Loftus when, when Nas was still playing playing rugby and I, and I said I watched one Blue Bull games I said dad I can't do this again and we moved to Cape Town so, <laughs> Welcome but, <laughs> but if you sit on the Oostbubbeljoen at, at Loftus Fastfeld for a, a rugby test match I mean there's so much Gies and, well, and, that that and, is the word. Yeah, it's it's just it's just an experience. I think the last test I watched there was when South Africa played the Lions, and it was the second test a couple of years ago. And we had to win this to win the series, and um, we were down, and they were better than us, but we won the test. And I literally sat amongst thousands of Lions supporters, and it was as a South African. Uh, it was just a joyous thing to sort of rub it into to them, but also the fact that we had, had won this test. So if you can go and watch at a packed Loftus, there's this. I know Newlands maybe because the South African Rugby Museum is there. And but still, Loftus is one of those iconic yeah, sort of places yeah. for rugby, you know. Blue Bull, so, yeah. Blue Bull country, yeah. And then Even us Storm's storm supporters. Um, I'll admit that, I, you know, as a Storm's supporter, yeah. It's still one of, Loftus is still one of those places yeah. that still gives you that sort of hair-raising little yeah. goosebumps feeling yeah. if you go there for a major test. Yeah. And this is coming from a born and bred Captonian, so you must know. It is quite something. Right, there's also, I mean, things, give us some more of the more sedate things. People um, listening, thinking, well, let me, tell me something I could go and do. If you haven't been to, to watch the sunset on the Chobe River, okay, so you stay in Kasani, which is sort of northern, northern Botswana, um, when it's sort of dry season and the elephants have to come down to the, to the river to, to, to drink water, and then they cross, they cross the, 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 the channel to some of the islands, and you just see the their trunk sticking out it looks like the snorkel on a vehicle almost and you'll see herds of elephant crossing the river and then the sun sets and we've all seen that that classic photo of these elephant silhouettes in this bright bright orange sky in, in the background and that's the sort of thing you'll see if you go to the Chobe National Park and then Victoria Falls which we've mentioned several times is only an hour hour away from that so yeah for that's definitely one of the more sedate experiences but let's not just focus sort of on on, on Cape Town or places we know even the Limpopo province I mean how many people go and go and travel to um, Lampobo with but there's a place called uh, Makuya and, and I just love this and I've, I've taken my wife there um, once or twice. Makuya Nature Reserve is 
No one knows about it. There's a place called World, World's View there, and you can stand, it feels like you're standing on the edge of the earth, and you look down into Kruger, and you can see the Lavuva River, you can see the elephants, the, the animals are just tiny, and it's so cheap for maybe 300 rand, you can get a, it's almost like a five-star chalet, but there's, no one knows about these places, but, they, but they're there. So before we head off skiing in Austria or want to go stay in a fancy resort in Mozambique, jeez man, go to Limpopo, it'll cost you a tenth of the price, and fortunately no one knows about these places. We've just told them now. Yeah, so there's lovely, lovely places in, in Southern Africa that we don't know about. Yeah, yeah I was just, also one of them, as you, you also have Lesotho in there, and I was, if you go oh. to Lesotho, also it's very sedate, you can go and drink at the highest pub in Africa, yeah. or you could hike, or well, that's slightly more energetic, hike to the highest point in Southern Africa. Yeah. So those are quite interesting things. Yeah, um, I love Lesotho, um, Jesus. It's got a ski resort. Okay. <laughs> a lot of people don't know that you can go skiing in Southern Africa. And I've got a, a T-shirt that says Afri Ski. When I go in Europe, people look at me and say, you can ski in Africa? I said, yes, of course you can ski in Africa. And I tell them about Afri, Afri Ski. The highest pub, there's maybe a bit of controversy about that. When you go up top of Sani Pass and you get Sani Top Chalets and you go into the pub there and there's a sign that says, welcome to the highest pub in Africa. But I've actually taken my GPS. If you go to Afri Ski, the pub, which they recently built, is technically a little bit higher than the one at the top of Sony, but it doesn't matter. You can go to both because <laughs> they're not that they're not that they're, um, they're not that far apart. So um, and then the Malutsiani Falls in also in Lesotho. This is the highest commercial abseil down a waterfall. That I, I'll be honest with you, that's one of the 150 I haven't done. You haven't done that. <laughs> Gosh, and there's, I'm there's, surprised. No, there's a reason for that. Every time I go there, it's ra it's, it's it's raining oh, and, and right, the water. Okay. There's too much water coming over the falls, so it's, it's it becomes dangerous then. So I've been several times and I've hiked to the waterfall. And I've stood underneath it. I've stood on top of it, but I've, the abseil is never on when I'm there. So it's still one of the 150 that I still need to do. So um, thousands yeah. wouldn't believe you, but we do. <laughs> we do. We do. Gosh, and how long does it take you to put this all together? I mean, these, as you said, are all experiences that you personally, except for that one, have um, pretty much done yourself. Yeah, there was a lot of to and froing between myself and the publishers. So I sat down, I drew up my list, they looked at it, they said, what about this, what about that? So, um, yeah, there was a lot of thought that went into it. And also, you had to, it had to be representative of, of, of the whole of Southern Africa. So most of the stuff is in South Africa. Mm. We're probably biased. So I think 80, well, I mean, there's what, 86, 86 yeah. Yeah, are, are in South Africa. And then there's a nice spread in Southern Africa. And, and I have cheated a little bit. I've gone into Tanzania and Kenya. There's about five or six from there. And, and the reason I've done this, if, if you are sort of in northern Namibia, you're gonna, you are going to go, if you're in Kahuka land, you're going to go across the, mm. the, the, the river and you're going to go into, into Angola. And same, if, if you're in certain parts of Zambia, Tanzania is only a chip and a putt away. So you, well, one of the things you have in here, and I've actually spoken to somebody on the show who went and saw this with the flamingos at Lake Manyara oh. and said that it was something yeah. he had never, yeah. ever thought that he would experience something quite as magnificent as the flamingos on the lake. There. Yeah, everyone, when you say Tanzania, everyone's Serengeti and Gora mm. Gora, but mm -mm. you drive past the entrance to, 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 to Lake Manyara National Park on the way to the Serengeti, it would be wrong. And you have lions in this park that tree climbing lions so if you're lucky we didn't see them but you might see lions just parking off in a tree there but obviously the biggest spectacle is these thousands and thousands of pink flamingos on the lake and then you might have a giraffe in the foreground or or a hippo coming out of the lake or whatever it's just it's just very special yeah so and um, the Maasai warriors i mean the, those i mean that's something i think is known pretty i would imagine internationally yeah. with the jumping Maasai warriors yeah it's one of those things you have to see in your life i know the, the first time i went to to tanzania and uh, 
and obviously they become used to thousands of Westerners traveling through there, mm. and there's a little bit of money has to exchange hands. But I always go and sit down with the chief, and I'm very respectful, and I show him a magazine, and I tell him what I'm trying to do. I said, please, do you mind if I can I hang out here for the day, and this is what I'm trying to achieve. But the, the best for me was when I took off whatever shirt I was wearing, and they put on one of their red blankets and they showed me how to jump and I was obviously very useless at it. But well, as I say, white men can't jump. I mean, we, we do go. know that. But. <laughs> but I think they used one of the photos in the book. So, yeah. Um, no, it's, it's, it's yeah, another one of those things that just has to be done, yeah. Yeah, one of the, as you said, has to be done. Yeah. And there's 150 of them that, that you must do, you said must do. Okay. Yeah. And there's a checklist at the back. So if you're wanting to keep track of what you've done and where you've done it, yeah. there's a little checklist where you can actually tick when you've done that thing. Exactly, exactly. So that's rather nice. You can keep track of where you've been and what you still have to do. I've included Zimbabwe, and, and, and rightly so. I mean, geez, it's, it's, p politics aside, um, I will go back there. As, well, much, just as much as I can. On the show about two weeks ago, I actually interviewed these guys who were down in South Africa because there's a new big tourism campaign at the moment called Zimbabwe's Back. Yeah. And they're pushing tourism. And it's it's really, I mean, they're doing really well, but yeah. they're reinventing or reinvigorating the tourism industry up yeah, there. Yeah. So it's a great time to do all the things that he, that you've listed in here. And there's a few of them. Yeah. And there's some quite interesting things that you've put in here to do in Zim. Yeah, I mean, there's the usual sort of full moon hike at Victoria Falls, whitewater rafting. But, I mean, uh, Mana Pools, very remote park, a horrible little track to get into but gee was when you're sitting on the southern banks of the Zambezi and the elephant walks into your camp and he stands on his hind legs and he picks the fruit out of the tree it's just it's, it's the only national park that I know of in the world or in, or in Africa where it's legal for you to get out of your vehicle and walk around and, and we, we use some locals and Bobby and guys who've been going there for years and, mm. the, and the guy's an author and I didn't feel comfortable at all with doing this we left the Land Rover, which was maybe a mile or two away from us, and we walked to one of the pools. Because mana, um, when the river dries up, the pools dry up, and the animals are forced to come come to the pools. When you're standing a few feet away from a hippo, and there's no protection you know, of the hectic. vehicle, yeah, it is. So, but um, yeah, South Africans do know about mana pools, and they, they are going in, in in sort of more and more numbers. But if if you want to sort of get lost in Zim, you you, you would go somewhere like the Eastern Highlands. There's some magnificent hiking there. The highest point in Zimbabwe is there. My wife and I spent a week there, and we didn't see didn't see a tourist there. So if you enjoy hiking, mm. uh, trout fishing and, and so on, the, the eastern highlands of Zimbabwe. Yeah. And from there, it's all downhill to the uh, Mozambique coast. So the opportunities are, are, are limitless. So, I mean, so you've done all of these bar one. Okay, so you've pretty much done 149 of these. Are you obviously still, you haven't stopped exploring and adventuring. So I'm assuming there's book number two with the next 150 things to do. Yeah, I've, I've, I've got a meeting this week with the publishers because a lot of the stuff I do here is sort of four by four related. Mm. Um, and I'm working for a Land Rover magazine at the moment i think the next book if it does happen probably safari or great routes to, to go in your in your four by four so we'll see i'm i'm, I'm hoping that well, do keep us in the loop when that one comes out we'd yeah. love to chat with you about that again patrick i must congratulate you this is a fabulous book thank you so and much I'll, i will wait to hear from you when you've done number 150 <laughs> and when the next book comes out Brilliant. but good luck with this um, so and much. i hope it goes really really well and i think it will it's something different yeah. And this book is called Your Bucket List. It's 150 must-do experiences in Southern Africa. It's written by Patrick Kravachen and published by Map Studio. You'll be able to find this at all good bookstores. And you can also take a look at the website. It's www.mapstudio.co.za. And that's it for Time to Travel for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me this evening. And I'll be back with you next Monday evening just after nine with The Law Report. And on Monday, I'll be joined by Mark Kingon, SARS Group Executive, Operational Services, Escalations and Support. So if you have any questions regarding your tax, make sure you tune into the show next week. That's Monday on The Law Report, the 24th of March.